like to welcome my guests to discuss the headlines. Steve Bryce, Global Chief Investment Officer at Standard Chartered Bank. Good morning, Steve. Good morning. How are you? Very well. How are you, Steve? I'm fantastic, thank you. That's great to hear. And I'm delighted to be speaking again with Enzio von Feil, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. Good morning, Enzio. Good morning, Stephen. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. How about you, Enzio? Can I complain? Thank you. Excellent. Well, we're all good to start this Thursday. Let's kick <laughs> off with NVIDIA, which is also good. Um, NVIDIA beat all analysts' expectations with awesome results and demand outstripping supply for its chips by 50%. Reuters said this news will add jet fuel to the AI and tech markets. I know many economists are now starting to think the rise of AI could be sustainable. What do you think, Steve? Um, well, I think you know, obviously AI is, is something that's um, you know front and center of almost every corporate strategy out there, at least in, in terms of what people say. I think people are still trying to catch up with the reality. Um, I think the, the perspective I have, obviously, the, the, the results last night were, were uh, amazingly good, and uh, you know I think Nvidia is an oasis in an oasis at the moment, so they yeah. have pretty much free pickings. Um, but I, I guess the bigger picture is you know yes they're doing very well the narrative and the story is very strong but it doesn't it doesn't stop me from reminding myself Cisco in the late 1990s right they had a yeah. very similar story um, they were trading at that time of around 250 times uh, trailing earnings before last night Nvidia was 220 now it's around 114 so it's obviously helping um, the earnings growth but no, I think the story is very positive, but doesn't mean that the, the investment over the long term is going to, to mirror that uh, strong narrative. Okay, it's interesting to take parallels from the past. I, I know you do that, um, Enzio. Any parallels you can draw from where we are with AI now to things yeah, that have happened in the past? Yeah, a couple of places where um, these things grew on oases. One was the Dutch tulip mania of 1634 <laughs> to 1637. That ended up in a bit of a pulp and paper job. And the second one was a tech bubble, 1995 to 2000. Not, of course, to forget the nutmeg bubble, which I couldn't track um, on Wikipedia when it actually happened. But again, people were chasing nutmeg of all vegetables so or spices. So I think that caveat emptor, buyer beware, because um, many people are just hopping onto the bandwagon. It's really the madness of crowds yeah. being repeated yet again, I'm afraid. Yeah, and um, I took the reference to that book and posted it on our um, LinkedIn site. It's, I, I, I read it, actually. Um, Enzio, you, thanks to yeah. you. Very interesting. But, but tell me, what happened with tulips? Did they go out of fashion, or how did the tulip market crash? I think that the investors went out of fashion or got undressed way ahead of the tulips, from what I very dimly recall. Yeah. But all that we know is that it was a, it was a mania that people bought in because everybody else was buying in the typical sort of sheep um, herd instinct. And then the whole thing, um, then one person, prices are always made at the margin, according to my old Professor von Hayek. And this is indeed the case where tulips reached a certain point of price. And then people said, this is too expensive. One sells and then the whole lot sells. That's what I love about you, Enzio. I didn't think I'd be talking about tulips this morning, but I can absolutely see the parallel. <laughs> They're nice flowers, as long as you don't buy them. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it, yes. Um, anyway, many observers, including uh, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley and Bank of America, viewed the decision by the mainland to maintain the five-year rate as an attempt to protect commercial banks. Net interest margins at the expense of consumers and the property sector. Does that 
rationale makes sense to you, Enzio? Well, I, they have a little bit of a dilemma because they have to stimulate the stuttering economy, but they also want to preserve the stability of the $56 trillion banking system in China. And if you cut rates too much, then you are, of course, reducing what we call net interest margins. And that then in turn means that the bank's profitability goes south, so they can't lend as much. So they're in a bit of a pickle. I think actually they're what Carlos Casanova of UPS was also saying, um, UPB, was yeah. that they will in fact also, they're wanting to keep a little bit of firepower in the back of the, in the, back of the gun in case they need to cut further. Okay, Steve. I think obviously a lot of people are drawing a comparison between China and Japan at the moment. I, yeah. I think I think that's exactly what China is trying to avoid. So I think they're playing the long game here and sort of saying, OK, you know, if we stimulate too much, we're going to lead to a massive uh, debt boom. And that could turn into a debt deflation cycle um, that will be impossible for them to actually control. So I think that's what they're trying to avoid. Obviously, it's a very tricky balancing act for them, given you know, the, the, the very short-term recovery we saw in the economy and then the slowdown we're seeing at the moment. So uh, I, I think it's really it's really challenging, but I think that's what they're trying to do. And obviously the banks are... I actually don't think the supply of liquidity is really what the challenge is at the moment. It's more on the demand side, but obviously they do want to uh, keep the banks capable of lending should uh, demand pick up. Um, but you think disaster could be avoided at the moment? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously, the, you know, the economy is still growing pretty, pretty well. Um, so, obviously, from a global perspective, it's still outstripping most economies, especially on a real basis. Um, but I think, you know, we do want to see inflation turn around and pick up um, relatively quickly, um, because that would then lead to, I think, much more positivity about the outlook. OK, let's move on to the BRICS, because they're meeting this week in Johannesburg. And they're talking about expanding, having a common currency, etc. How do you see the future for the BRICS, Steve? Um, so obviously we're going to see expansion. Um, I think this is a, a geopolitical uh, concept. Um, the common currency, I think, is just a total tosh, to be honest. Yeah, um, a bit high in the sky. Yeah, we had that post, the Asian financial crisis, people talking about the Asian currency units, and obviously that never never took off. I think this is very similar. Um, they're very, very different countries, uh, disparate ge- geography, but also in terms of their economic um, uh, you know, the economic comp- composition. Um, I suppose the latter didn't stop Europe. <laughs> well, that's right. A, yeah, I was uh, just thinking of that. Currency, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I think the former is also very important here. So uh, I think that's highly unlikely. Enzio. Well, I think the BRICS itself is a bit of a talk fest. Yeah. But not really what the Chinese have been doing with their global development initiative, which has about seven parts. But I'm not going to rattle all of them off. In case your listeners want to find out, then just email me. But um, I'm just saying that it's not really the BRICS. That's not where the action is. The action is really with the China's Global Development Initiative, where they understandably are seeking to knock the U.S. off its dollar perch and off its power perch. I don't think that's going to happen for many, many years because the, the Chinese don't have the legal wherewithal to institute a reserve currency and I don't know whether they have the money to really take on the U.S. military spending amounts. So I think that that's still a long way off. But just reader beware um, or be cognizant, not beware, that the Chinese obviously have their own agenda, which is just fine. Competition is never bad. And that has seven parts to it.
Okay. Well, let, let's put those nine points on our LinkedIn site, um, NZO. So I'll get those yeah. from you later. That would be great to share with our listeners. Now, there are over 40 countries wanting to join BRICS. And if a few of the bigger ones join, it could track to over half the world's GDP. I think I gave you guys the wrong information earlier where I said 40%. It's actually over half the world's GDP under its umbrella. So I know it's the talk fest. Um, I know it hasn't exactly got a, a, a great track record yeah. of getting stuff done, but let's just say that did happen. How would that impact the rest of the world, Enzio? Well, it, it depends, as, as you were just alluding to, to what they actually specifically do. We know in the case of China, as, as, a, as a band leader of BRICS, that the being Brasilia, Russia, um, India, China and South Africa... Um, that we know that China is leading the pack on the BRICS as these other seven, six initiatives. So, but until they really coalesce into, into specific actions as opposed to just getting together and basically having a little bit of a cheerleader session, I don't think a lot's going to come out of these sessions except the taxpayers get to pay more trips. Oh, yes. Do you agree Mark, with that, Steve? It's cynical. I, I, I think I, I generally do. I think that the one thing is, I think I see this as obviously something that China wants to do to counterbalance what's happening in the West, right? So if you look at their exports to Belt and Road Initiative countries now, that's above what we're seeing in the US, Europe and Japan combined, right? So the economic trends are changing. And, and I think that's just, you know, China basically hedging itself against Western dominance and Western influence. Yes. Um, so this will move us more and more in that direction, I guess. But uh, yeah, direct impact on markets, I think, is, is, is pretty difficult to determine. Okay, got it. Now, I'd love to be a fly buzzing around Jackson's hole right now. What are you expecting to come out of it, Steve? So, I, I guess, um, you know, if anything, the, the short-term forward-looking indicators have improved in the U.S. in recent times. So, if you're looking at capital goods orders or the leading economic indicator. Um, so, I think they'll be pretty feeling pretty good about themselves. Um, obviously, inflation is coming down, but remains above target. So, I think they have very little incentive to back down from their hawkish terminology at the moment. Um, you know, I think the markets will be trying to figure out whether another rate hike is likely. I think probably they'll feel that they've they've done enough for now, um, but they will not want to be signalling um, that they're definitely done or no. not, clearly that they're, they're going to be cutting rates anytime soon. So, I think. Um, you know, I think that that's the sort of thing that we're going to see coming out. We've seen that obviously being priced in the bond market more and more in recent times. Um, but so, so I, I guess from a that, that, that's what we're expecting from a terminology perspective. But maybe the dollar looks like it might be topping out a little bit here. Ten-year uh, yield as well could uh, could is unlikely to drive much higher on the back of this. So it could be uh, a bit of buy the rumor, sell the fact as far as the dollar is concerned. So Enzio, are you aligned with that? Are you seeing no rate increase? What are your thoughts? I think there's actually going to be a little bit more of a rate increase, uh, but I would, but I, I think a lot of what Steve was saying was was very sensible on this, if I may add. But just to add to what Steve was saying, I think that you're going to find a problem about the lagged effects of this very steep rate increase that we've had over the past year, year and a half since March of 2002, basically. And I think the Fed has to factor that in that it's not just a matter of today's real Fed funds rate of about 2.2% in real terms, not nominal terms, of about 5.2%, but um, that you're also going to find the lagged effects of higher rates biting at some point, what with China's woes, the war in the Ukraine, 
and regional lenders in the U.S. already beginning to pull back. So I think it's more than just keeping on the lagged effects of these rising rates. I think that will also keep make the Fed a little bit reticent at this stage to raise further. Okay, now we've just got uh, 15 seconds probably for each of you to touch on uh, the next question. Now, interesting about Japan. Uh, apparently 40% of Japan's spending is by pensioners. So mm. they don't get pay increases when we talk about the pay increases going right. up in Japan. How do you think domestic demand could be stimulated in Japan, Enzio? Well, I think through the wage increases, which will affect the other 60% of people. That's why 15 seconds. Okay, Steve, your 15 seconds. That was less, actually. Very good. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess, you know, the, the, the picture is, on that is pretty clear. If you look at the labour market, it's doing pretty well. Um, participation rate is increasing. Um, so that's probably going to dominate. It doesn't make it any less easier, easier for um, pensioners. Um, but overall, I think the domestic story is looking pretty robust today. Well, thank you both for being concise on that last question. <laughs> Steve Rice, Global Chief Investment Officer at Standard Chartered Bank, and Enzio von File, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, is 